this morning has been a blessing already to you. Your hearts have been stirred toward the Lord as we've lifted our voices to Him in song, singing truths, as we've read His Word together. It's a blessing. It's a gift, really, um, that we have the blessing of doing that together. This morning, we're going to be looking uh, at a longer text than we usually will look at. Uh, It's both wonderful and, at the same time, quite honestly, um, really hard. It's a text that includes uh, a portion that many of us uh, probably don't like to think about. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32, and working all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. So go ahead and turn there. We saw uh, last week, if you were here, how the believers prayed in response to the threats of the religious leaders, and in that, they showed their trust in God, God who meets them there in that place. The place is shaken, they're filled with the Spirit, they're, uh, they're bold with the gospel, and now we come to this section that explains, uh, beginning to explain the culture of this body of believers. So if you're able to stand, go ahead and do that and follow along as I read, beginning with Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, we come before you 
as humble servants. And we confess to you, Lord, we are all sinners. All of us have sinned, and all of us fall short of your glory. And we ask for mercy. That you would help us in this time, Lord. There are texts that are truly difficult for us, Lord. Hard for us to read. Hard for us to understand. And we pray that you'd help us through this, Lord. That we would honor you more. And worship you more in spirit and in truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, obviously, we can... um, see from the very beginning which parts are uh, parts that we want to be a part of in this text and the parts that we don't want to be a part of in this text. The first section at the end of chapter 4 is such a wonderful picture of life in the kingdom of God. It really is beautiful. Look at how these believers are following Jesus. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. All of them, all of those who believed were of one heart and soul. We, we don't want to forget that the number is over 5,000 people now. And all of them who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. In Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul writes to the Philippians, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The fellowship of the believers in Jerusalem, in this early church, is such a wonderful example of that. One heart and soul. Unity in mind and spirit. And that that was reflected in their actions, in their love for others. It says no one... No one in the church said, that's mine. They had everything in common. They lived their lives with a steadfast love for others and were truly dying to themselves. They're following Jesus. And you think about Jesus. You remember when Jesus made his dramatic appearance in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and he He reads from the scroll and rolls it up and says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what scripture? Well, he had just 
read it to them from Isaiah, and it said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's saying, I'm the one. I'm this one that was prophesied, and I'm going to bring these things to you. Jesus had announced the ultimate fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, and in his life, he went around talking about how people would be forgiven their sins and how they would be forgiven their debts. Now here in Acts, these believers in Jerusalem are actually following what they had heard and seen in Jesus. Remember Peter's words to the religious leaders, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. These followers of Jesus are living out Jesus' words. They're living out His way of life. Verse 33 And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The apostles, you remember they're they're warned, they're threatened not to do this, but they keep giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. They keep telling people how they saw Jesus die, and then days later how He appeared to them alive, and how He taught them, how Jesus truly is the Messiah, the hope of the world. If you remember from last week, the Spirit had filled them and and given them this boldness to continue doing that, and they're doing it. Luke tells us there in verse 33 that great Grace was upon them all. Isn't that a wonderful word picture? Great grace was upon them all. Isn't that, that's what we want. As as the church, that's what we want. Great grace was upon them all. It goes on in verses 34 and 35. There's not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Incredible. This is a community living out what it was like to walk with Jesus on earth. It's incredible. Now, now this call to to care for the poor is not new. It's not even new with Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, followers of God were called to care for the poor, especially widows and orphans. That really was the point of the year of Jubilee, where debts were, were supposed to be forgiven completely every seven years. In Isaiah 58, we see God's heart for the poor so clearly. In Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 11, this is the Lord speaking. Is not this the fast that I choose? 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So this is not new. This call is not new to care for the poor. And now here in this early church, thousands of people are living this way not counting themselves as more significant than others. Full of the Spirit and submitted to God's desires for what life ought to be like. You think about the statements that Luke makes to describe the community of believers. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. Why was there not a needy person among them? It wasn't because they were excluded from them. It's because those who owned lands or houses, those who had multiple properties and multiple homes chose to sell some of what they had to help those who were in need. Now, when I sit and think about this community and what joy it must have been to be a part of this community, I think, I think it resembles Eden so much. The way that God intended things to be. Don't get me wrong on that. I'm not... These people certainly struggled with sin, and and when God created man and put them in Eden, there was no sin. I'm not saying there's not sin in the church. There is. But they're living in a way that reflects what life was to be like, a way that reflects what it will be like in the new earth. And in telling this story, as Luke tells this story, and really he's telling it again because we saw how they lived in this way in chapter 2. And yet here we, we see even as they've grown by thousands, they continue to live this way. But in telling this, Luke introduces us to a character who will be frequently mentioned as we move forward in the book of Acts. Verses 36 and 37, thus Joseph who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph, a man that was nicknamed Barnabas by the apostles. Luke tells us that Barnabas means son of encouragement. So imagine that. Living life, a life of such encouragement that the apostles just start calling you that. That's Barnabas. And he's singled out from from others who probably did the same, but he's identified by name as one who sold a field that he owned and brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, certainly there would be joy in the body of believers as they see Barnabas give in such a way. Maybe this happened in Solomon's portico where, where the believers continued to gather. But again, it's a wonderful picture that we see in this section of Acts. And yet, sadly, things take a turn and joy turns to terror. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Notice that the verse starts with, but. This is why we're keeping these texts together. I don't think Acts 5, 1 through 11 is meant to be understood apart from what happens right before it. And I want to say here, as we're getting into this, I tremble at this, legitimately. I know my heart, and I know that God knows my own heart. And I tremble at this text, and I've honestly prayed for mercy as I've gone through preparing this, because I know that I am sinful. And I know that my heart consistently gravitates towards self. And so as I go through this, trying to explain it, I want to do that with humility. I don't know God's thoughts and purposes in all things. We we don't know that but we can trust him in all things. And in the text, we're introduced to this man named Ananias. Now, Ananias is the contrast to Barnabas. Let's understand what exactly is happening here. Ananias, with the knowledge of his wife, Sapphira, sells property just like Barnabas did. But instead of bringing all of the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. He brings part of the money and keeps part of it himself. So Ananias and Sapphira have money that they're keeping for themselves. Now, is that wrong? No, that's not wrong. We find that out in the text. That's not wrong. But the question is why? Why why would they do this? Or why would they do this in this way? 
for one thing, and I, I want to be cautious here, I'm telling you what my thoughts are here, but I'm also confessing I don't fully understand this. But you think about this, there are thousands of believers. This is a church, okay? This is not a small church in Ephesus and then another small church in Philippi that we're adding together. It's fine. This is a church, okay? Thousands of them. And life is amazing in the community of God. Joyful and loving. It's not perfect, but it is full of life and it is full of love. And Barnabas comes and he lays this gift of money at the apostles' feet. Money from a field that he owned and sold so that needy people could be helped. Now, what do we think the response to that would be from the church? They're not robots, okay? These are real people. They're just as real as you are. They're just as real as I am. So put yourself in the text here for a second, okay? Remembering it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive, but for a minute, you have permission. Put yourself in the text. How would you respond Someone walks into the church, and, and you know this person, and they've sold one of their homes, or they've sold land that they had somewhere else, and they, they lay it at the apostles' feet, and they say, use this to meet the needs of those who are poor. How would you respond? You would celebrate. You would be joy-filled. You would applaud. You would be thankful, you would praise God, but there would also be a tension that would go to the individuals who would sacrifice and give in such a way. Encouragement and even praise. And, and before we think, well, that's sinful. It's not sinful. I mean, we're, we're told in, in, in the Psalms, let another man praise you. So coming from them as, a, as an act of worship, saying, look what the Lord has done through this person giving, that's a natural response. Now to be clear, that's not why Barnabas gave. He gave out of sincere love for God and others as an act of worship, but still the aftermath must have been loud joy. And so, so now you have this situation. I would think you would have this situation. Because now there's this temptation for someone to think, man, I'd like to be acknowledged like that. I'd like to be known as someone important among all of these people. And I think that is where sin comes in with Ananias. He sees what's happening and he wants to be noticed. He wants to be praised. And so he comes up with this idea to sell a piece of property he owns and to give money, but he chooses to lie about it. He conspires against the Lord. And Peter knows this. He prophetically knows what is in the heart of Ananias. And we, we can assume that Ananias is has told the apostles that he sold the property for a certain amount of money and that that was what he was giving. All of the money was being given from what he had sold the property for. 
And so Peter says, why? Why has Satan filled your heart? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why have you kept back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now again, we find out that Peter's not saying that the sin was that Ananias didn't give the whole amount. But he's asking, what would motivate you to do this? Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. The property was his. He could do whatever he It belonged to Ananias. There's no command anywhere that anyone must sell their extra land or houses and give it all to the poor. They were called to care for the poor. That was the expectation. He had the freedom to keep the property if he wanted to. He also had the freedom to sell it and give part of the money or give all of the money. Giving even part of the money would have been a blessing. But he lied. He lied not only to the church, but Peter says he lied to God. And lying is a big deal in in, in, uh, Proverbs. Chapter 26. Verse 28. A lying tongue hates its victims. And a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 6, starting with verse 16 through verse 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows sows discord among brothers. How many of those things are Ananias? Verses 5 and 6. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, this is honestly terrifying. We can understand the response of the people, the response of the church. Ananias immediately falls down and dies. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now listen, this is not the great fear that we see in the Bible that means um, reverent awe of God. It's terror. It's fright. It's the terrifying thought, could this happen to me? This was a definite and difficult reminder that God is holy. Continues in verses 7 through 11, and after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. 
And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So three hours later, his wife comes in, Sapphira. It's possible that she is assuming that he's already given the money and is anticipating a warm welcome. Peter asks her a specific question. Is this how much you sold the land for? And she says yes, and another terrifying judgment happens. It's not just terrifying, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because unlike Ananias, Sapphira has the opportunity in this moment to say, no, 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 it's actually this much. But she doesn't, and Peter makes clear here that the two of them had plotted to put the Holy Spirit to the test, which is a reminder of many texts in the Old Testament. And the, again, again, the effects bring great fear. Great fear not just upon the whole church, but upon all of those who had heard about it. Now, you, you may come to this text and read this text and have as many questions as I do, and I'm going to do my best to talk through it, to respond to the text with honesty and gentleness. But, but I want to say that we don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were saved or not. Whether they were followers of Jesus or not. It doesn't tell us in the text. We can make assumptions. I don't know what the right answer is. There's reasons to answer either way. But let, let's at least ask this. What is happening here? I mean, honestly, all of us probably read it and would be, would be thankful and even relieved if Ananias and Sapphira both had been confronted and repented, deciding to do what was right, turning away from the conspiring and desires of their heart confessing what, what they had done. But that didn't happen. And let me say first, swift judgment falls on Ananias and Sapphira. A judgment that is, as N.T. Wright comments, despite popular impressions to the contrary, highly unusual in the Bible. And it's scary. And it's real, but it is unusual in the Bible to see this. And so let's contrast these two sections that we have just gone through, which are all one story. In the first part, the whole church and the representative in the text, which is Barnabas, are counting others as more significant than themselves. 
they're experiencing a reflection of the way God created things to be, a sort of Eden or a sort of kingdom of God here and now. But then Ananias and Sapphira are the opposite. Rather than counting others as more significant, they covet. They want what they don't have, and they're willing to conspire to get it. They want to be noticed. They want to be praised by people. So they're willing to give up a little to get what they see as more valuable, which is a really good way to live if what is more valuable to you is Jesus. But what they desire isn't the self-giving of chapter 4, it's self-promotion. As I sat and thought through this and wondered about this scenario, my mind went to Cain and Abel. I wonder if maybe this isn't a picture of that. Not, Not to say that this didn't happen, it really happened. Not to say that it happened for this reason, but consider the story of God. In the beginning, there's this perfect kingdom. God creates the heavens and the earth, and He makes Eden, and He creates man, and He puts man in Eden. And then sin enters the world, and man's removed from that perfect kingdom. And the children of Adam and Eve were hoped to be the answer to the problem. But that wasn't the case. They they bring offerings to the Lord. One is an offering from a pure heart by Abel. One's an offering from a selfish heart from Cain. And as I've thought about this text this week, I've struggled with probably the same things that you do, but I wonder if there's a connection here. We're taught again in this text We're reminded again in the beginning of this new covenant kingdom that God does care about our worship. He does care about our motives. There's a picture here of Abel in Barnabas and certainly many others in the church that aren't named about worship. And there's a picture of Cain and Ananias and Sapphira. In the story again, God says no to Cain. This is not how his new kingdom community will be. That motive matters, not just function. And the story is unique. It's not one that we see repeated in the New Testament. I say that cautiously. That doesn't mean that God was just making a point here. I tremble at the thought of neglecting the seriousness of this text. And so in our fear, as we come to a text like this, in our fear, what do we do? How do we respond to this? It's not to ignore it like, we, like our, our flesh wants to do. Mallory Kaufman stopped me before coming in and said, 
how many years ago? She's not in here, is she? 16 years ago? Six, 19? Six, no, we're 19 years old. 16 years ago, she came to Cornerstone for the first time, and the sermon that I was preaching was Ananias and Sapphira. She stayed, um, which is amazing. But we don't want this mentality of like, okay, wow, okay, 16 years is a long time. So we don't even have to think about Ananias and Sapphira for another 16 years and we just dismiss it. No, no, no. What do we do with this? Like, what do we do with the fear that we might feel as we read a text like this? And the answer, the only answer is to cling to Jesus, to the grace and mercy of Jesus. Grace that is seen in the one who represents Abel here, but not simply in the fact that he did the right thing. This is, this is not that he was the good guy and Ananias was the bad guy. Because later we find out that Barnabas also displayed hypocrisy. You remember in our study through Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas is led astray by their hypocrisy. And yet, his motives were different. And through it, God's mercy is great. This isn't a story saying that Barnabas is perfect and Ananias is not. It's a story about mercy. The character of God is one of holiness. A holiness so great that not one person, including Barnabas, deserves to be in his presence. Holiness in his love and holiness in his mercy and holiness in all of his ways. And we are his only by that holy mercy. If I were to retitle this sermon, I'd title it The Happy and Holy God. And that's what's presented to us the happiness of life with God and the holiness of the one who will be worshipped and not conspired against. We're desperate for him. Desperate for the great grace that Luke tells us was upon all of the church. Desperate for the desire of that great grace. And so as we go into a time now where we take the bread and the cup, let's come sincerely. Considering what Jesus did for us. For our sins, he took our place. His body was broken and his blood was shed. Paul tells us because of that, we should examine our motives whenever we take the bread and the cup. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read a portion of this almost every time we take 
the Lord's Supper, but I'm going to read the whole um, text around it. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Let's come considering others as more significant than ourselves. Let's come examining our hearts. Let's come like those who are willing to give to worship the Lord. And let's come remembering His body was broken for us. And his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're here today and, and as you attempt to examine your own heart, you find you have no love for God. You have no desire to follow the Lord. Then I would, I would encourage you, don't, don't come and receive the bread and the cup and, and just go through the motions. That if this text teaches us anything, it's saying to us, don't just go through the motions. But instead, rather than coming and getting these elements that the Lord graciously gives to us to represent what He has done and why we do love Him, and, and to help us announce to each other, we believe this, if you don't believe that, instead just stay and, and sit in your seats and, and maybe take this time to just ask the Lord, help me. If you're real, if you're there, help me. Help me to know you. Help me to believe these things. 
you're going to be dismissed to come and, and receive and to go back to your seats. And we're going to sing together before we take it together as a body. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We need you, Lord. We need you. We don't love you the way that we ought to or the way that we even desire to. I'm humbled by even seeing this text of how the body functions, Lord. And I don't, I don't even look at that in a way other than whether that's me or not, Lord. Do I love you like that? Do I submit to you and your desires like that, Lord? Do I love other people more than I love myself? Do I count them as more significant than myself, Lord? Father, we need you. In the same way that this body was this way because your spirit came and filled them, we need you. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be people right now in this moment, to be people who desire you. That you would help us, that you'd awaken us, open our eyes to, to see how good you are, how gracious you are. The mercy that you show us every single day. Help us to cling to you. Help us to trust in you. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't yet know you, doesn't believe these things, Lord, I pray that you would help them to know without a single doubt how much you love them. That you proved your love for us, for all of us, every single one of us, and that while we were still sinners, when we hated you, when we were against you, when we didn't trust in you, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that he showed the ultimate counting others more significant than himself. So help us, Lord, in our faith, in our love, and in our walk, in our display of who you are, and be glorified in this time right now as we take these symbols of your love for us and we proclaim to those around us, we believe that Jesus died and that his body was broken for us and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins and we believe that he was raised and that we will see him we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.